You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Nice to be with you in the studio. I, before we started recording, listeners, you should know we were doing a mic test, and Paul decided to do his old-timey radio voice, which is not sitting well with me today. What bothers you about it, Kyla? It's that it's been a long day, Paul, and I just want to get this done. Well, you shouldn't think that way about the podcast because it's exciting and we've got lots to talk about. One topic that we had from last week that we never got to. And of course, developments in the law this week. Okay, you really got to cut that out, please. I'll stop. Okay. Um, you know, I was offered a job in radio. Well, it's a good thing you didn't take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, the uh, we're actually not going to talk about that topic that we were going to talk about last week because there's so much more. Oh my goodness. We Kate. have big... Big driving law news in BC. The first thing that we should talk about is the BC Prosecution Service announced that it has approved a charge of dangerous driving against the man who uh, drove his car into the crowd of protesters at, well, not protesters, marchers at a residential school memorial march last year. This was a big story, but it could have been a much bigger story at the time, bearing in mind what has taken place with people driving into crowds um, at at, at various different um, political events over the last few years. But it kind of got quiet. So what happened? Well, if you remember when it was first um, sort of hit in the news, there was a lot of uproar about it. And then the mission RCMP basically said, oh, yeah, it's not that big a deal. We've investigated. And this was just a case of an impatient driver who was upset that people were moving slowly and blocking the road. Um, That was a really strange twist. And it did not sit well with a lot of people. People did not like that. So uh, it was not um, well received. And turns out they did an investigation. Uh, They identified the driver. Apparently everybody that was at the protest already knew who he was. Um, he allegedly was hurling racial slurs at people and it was later discovered that, uh, his vehicle had run over, um, a man, um, causing him bruising and some bleeding and had nearly struck, uh, four other people. So there were five people who were sort of in the path of the vehicle and sort of the big story today or the big question today that I thought you and I could sort of flesh out a little bit is why, if somebody was actually injured and bleeding, why is this just dangerous driving simpliciter and not dangerous driving causing bodily harm? You're not. I hope you're not posing that question to me because I want you to answer it for me because I really am not sure. Well, I mean, the first reason is <sighs> that in order for it to be a sort of valid bodily harm charge, there does need to be something that is more than what the law calls trifling or transitory harm. And so if there but it's were... a pretty low standard. Like the Supreme Court weighed in on this a couple of years ago on what constituted bodily harm in a assault causing bodily harm case. Yeah. And it was a pretty low standard, as I recall. Yeah, but cuts and bruises are, you know, maybe not high enough, arguably not high enough to meet that standard. 
particularly from like the substantial likelihood of conviction, because if the trial really becomes about arguing whether or not that constitutes bodily harm, that's a really big waste of everybody's time. Um, when given the level of bodily harm, it likely wouldn't attract much of a different sentence than a dangerous driving simpliciter charge. The second reason that I can see for it not being a causing bodily harm is because of the events that led up to him actually driving towards and making contact with people, it may be possible for the driver, being the, you know, the, the defendant, to say, well, they were only injured because they got in the path of my vehicle, trying to respond to the things that I was saying. Yeah, that could be, I suppose. I mean, my thought was maybe uh, all the other people had witnessed what they'd witnessed. The individual who had been harmed didn't want to participate in the process, didn't want their their medical records disclosed, uh, were reluctant witness for some other reason. That was sort of my my first inclination. Then that's possible too. The flip side of this, though, is it is odd that it wasn't a bodily harm charge, given the BC Prosecution Services sort of special considerations that they have to have when the victim of a crime is an Indigenous person. So under the BC Crown Council policy manual, if the victim of an offence, because Indigenous people are overrepresented, I think um, statistics actually came out this week that found that Indigenous people are six and a half more times likely than a member of the general population to be murdered just murdered six times more likely to six and a half times more likely to be murdered. So they're, they're disproportionately overrepresented as victims of violent crime. From a poly policy perspective, charging that offense that has the violence associated with it in, in my view might have been a better move, even if it would be more difficult to prove. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we'll have to wait and see. Um, well, we know what was charged, so we don't we know, have to wait and see. Well, we know what the charge is. We have to wait and see whether or not they can prove it. Uh, you know, it's still going to be a trial, one would think. Or Well, he might plead guilty. Might be a plea. Who knows? Um, if there is, either way, it'll come out. But then also think about, like, there were other charges that the police could have gone with, right? Like, they could have gone with uttering threats. Assault with a weapon. Yeah. And those have, you know, the same very broad sentencing. It's very easy to prove the car is a weapon. The car was used as a weapon. It doesn't require the bodily harm component, but it still denotes violence. And I think it, it more reasonably captures the sort of intentional nature of an attack on Indigenous people that is being alleged here. Mm, you know, the thing about dangerous driving is it can be less intentional uh, and... Uh, unlike an assault, um, you can prove the intention fairly easily with the driving. You know, so, I mean, dangerous driving is, uh, it really it starts on a, a scale, right? And includes where you get to beyond negligence, right? Not yeah, just an so issue of making a bad decision is where it sort of starts, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's higher than momentary negligence. It's a marked departure from the standard of a reasonably prudent driver. That's your mens rea. Yeah, but that's a that's an easier standard to prove than the mental element of an assault. An intentional touching of another person with a weapon? Yeah, 
I think so. I think dangerous driving is easier for the mens rea component. Perhaps. I don't know. When you've got a guy that's allegedly yelling racial slurs and saying, get out of my way and I'm going to fucking kill you and then runs his car into people. I I don't know. (laughs) Well, wait and see what the evidence is. Maybe that wasn't the evidence ultimately that they felt was compelling. Now, the third aspect of this is hate legislation. Now, this is obviously not like inciting hate or willful promotion of hate, one of our hate crimes. But if the crown proves that it was motivated by hate, it was motivated by hate and not as the RCMP sort of initially suggested. Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Just a good old boy who was just impatient. Um, Then that increases the potential range of sentence. I mean, for sure. That's the whole point of those provisions in the criminal code. So So I was asked on on Stephen Quinn's show, um, uh, the early edition on CBC today, to talk about this. And I thought an interesting exercise for you and I today, because obviously I'm not going to go on the radio and speculate about what sentence somebody would receive, but I thought an interesting exercise for you and I today would be talking about what type of sentence either of us would impose if we were the judges and we were hearing those facts. Well, we'd have to make a decision on what facts were accepted, I think, and then give our sentence. Racial, so you, racial slurs. Okay. Driving into a crowd of people who were doing a commemorative march to honor residential school uh, victims and survivors. Okay. Driving record of the individual? Age? Uh, age, mid-50s. Driving record, uh, let's go with none. Okay. And... Um, then let's look at the capacity and history of this person. And what else can we say about their character? Well, they're uh, otherwise a sort of normal community member, family, steadily employed for the last 15 years. And they're convicted of what? Dangerous driving. Not causing bodily harm. Not causing bodily harm, but the bodily harm that we've talked about already has been proven as a fact at trial. And thus is an aggravating factor on sentence. By what statute. does the person do for a living? I don't know. They're a roofer. All right. Well, okay. So those are the accepted facts. Um, I think we should probably be writing down our two sentences and putting them in a hat, but you can go first. You're more likely to ever be a judge. I'll never be a judge. I don't want to be a judge. (laughs) Um, I would impose with the racial slurs aspect of it, given the significance to the indigenous community, the disproportionate effect of violent offenses on indigenous people I would impose 14 days jail to be served intermittently, followed by 18-month driving prohibition and a period of probation that included community work service um, specifically involving reconciliation to the Indigenous uh, community and counseling. Okay. So there you go. Um, I had another question about the individual. I forget what it was as you were starting to... Give your sentence there. Um, that was a good sentence. No, it is a good sentence. And uh, I would not have imposed such a harsh sentence. I probably would have, uh, I would have, I, I, I likely would have given um, the 18 month driving prohibition. Uh, I would want to determine what the implications were of the driving prohibition to the individual because they're going to get a maximum or a minimum one year in any event. Yep. Um, and, um, so I probably would have made it 18 months as well. 
but I would have considered a discharge with community work service. Um, a discharge. Yeah, and again, it depends on uh, it depends on whether or not this is a plea or convicted at trial. If it was convicted at trial, I may not grant the discharge. But think of the test. I mean, I, the fallow field test still applies. Uh, all of the, the, you know, the test in the criminal code still applies. Um, a person of good character, person who's got no criminal record, he's got no driving record. Um, and really, we're talking about um, uh, under uh, 30 seconds of, of incident uh, in his life where he really, you know, botched it. And driving, uh, a driving prohibition is significant punishment. Um Community work service, yes, but I wouldn't stipulate what it was because I don't think that's necessarily the way to win people over. Uh, probably 40 hours of community work service and uh, conditional discharge and a 18-month uh, driving prohibition. Wow. I just think that the, that a discharge in those circumstances would be contrary to the public interest because of the potential of racial bias as a motivating factor. I would not want to give a conviction in those circumstances um, just on that basis coming to the conclusion that um, general deterrence or what have you demands a conviction. I'd have to take into account the individual before me who has no criminal record, no driving record uh, in a very short incident. And if it's a guilty plea, I can tell you I would uh, accept that remorse. And it would come with a long lecture, but again, it would be a discharge. Wow, somebody appoint Paul a judge. I'm doing all my sentencings in front of him. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I explain to the court any time I'm doing a plea in sentencing the implications of a criminal record. And it's changed significantly in the course of my lifetime. Uh, you know, it used to be that the likelihood of your employer finding out about your criminal record down the road unrelated to your employment, um, was very slim. Now it's significant. And I can just uh, look you up on CSO. Two separate, two different candidates applying for the job. Uh, you know, a criminal record can cost you millions of dollars in lost opportunity and lost income over the course of your life. Uh, and I am very reluctant to see people get a criminal record when I know that, uh, most people are deterred by their arrest. Um, and uh, giving somebody a criminal conviction has deterred few people. So if it's for the purpose of the public record, you know, the record of the discharge still exists and, and prosecution will know that in their uh, next matter that they're dealing with with that individual if that does in fact happen. So I don't see the public interest um, being to uh, give the individual a criminal record in those circumstances. And I don't see, certainly not in the individual's interest. So applying the test in the criminal code that we refer to as the fallow field test in BC, but it's just the test in the criminal code, I come to the conclusion and uh, I'm hereby, you know, making that uh, determination. That's my sentence. Okay. Well, Crown Council would appeal you. Anyway, moving on to the other big driving news in BC this week, Paul. David Eby, in his flurry of announcements of everything and everything under the sun, has announced $230 million in funding to the RCMP in British Columbia for the purposes of, among other things, creating a new highway patrol section in areas that are underserved by highway patrol currently, and 
or new highway patrol sections and in civil forfeiture. That's big money. $230 million, yeah, but how are they going to pay for it, everybody starts saying. Well, that was my first question. Like, do they just have $230 million kicking around that they can just pull out? Oh, hey, hang on. You know what? We're just going to take, uh, we got that sitting over here. You're thinking about health care. And uh, just a week and a half ago, they were meeting with the federal government saying, we need more money from the federal government. you got to pay us to do our job, which is, of course, it's a provincial government job to provide health care. Mm-hmm. And every provincial government has taxation authority. And everyone is competing with every other provincial government to have the lowest taxes. And all they have to do is properly tax. Yeah, but here's so, the thing. where do they get the 238 million bucks? Here's the thing. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, here's the thing about taxing. First of all, uh, the NDP government, uh, if it wants to maintain the tenuous hold that it currently has on power, cannot increase taxes because that will be the thing that gets them unelected. It doesn't matter what else they do. They could F everything else up. They will not be reelected for taxes. Well, every provincial government is in the same boat and the federal government you know, collects federal income tax and they're expected, the provinces just expect them to pay it right back to them for the purpose of health care. Uh, but the provinces want to be the ones who run health care. So it's uh, one of those things. You and I talk about it all the time. Split responsibility, no responsibility. Yes. And they just shuffle off the blame on the federal government. And it fucking drives me crazy but- because it's never properly funded. But where did they get the $238 million? I'm telling you, they've got the power of taxation. The money's coming in. Uh, And they'll go into debt to do it. Nah, they'll be able to recoup those costs no problem. Just the, and this is just for their asset forfeiture and ticketing. Last year, I looked up the numbers after this announcement because I was very interested in how much revenue does ticketing bring in. So just on speeding tickets in British Columbia last year, just speeding, not all the other traffic offenses, there were 222,000 speeding tickets issued. Now, some of them are for $138, some of them are for $276. Average it out, $200. Some are $196 and some are $368. But if we average it out at $196, which is the 21 over speed um, And probably the majority of tickets that are issued. Probably the majority because many police officers won't issue them at $138. It would average out all pretty, yeah. That is, just for speeding, $43 million just for speeding. Now, if you get one-third more speeding tickets, you're already getting another $10, $15 million just from that. It is surprising to me that David Eby is really often about the bottom line. <laughs> like well. he's, he, he is uh, a, a guy who has been concerned about government finances since the day that they became the government. And it, it uh, he was more of an advocate for the downtrodden prior to that. Yeah, he was. And this is always disappointing to us left-wing types. Um, So that's just speeding. Um, That doesn't include intersection enforcement. That doesn't include distracted driving, all of the other things. So overall, I I also looked at distracted driving. Did you know that the government pocketed $9.9 million in revenue from distracted driving tickets last year? It would be easy, easy for them to double that. Yeah. Yeah, today I was driving on Broadway and a guy beside me is texting as he's at the light and he's looking, he looks over at me and doesn't even stop. Yep. And, (sighs) and let's not forget that for every one of those tickets that's issued, there are tons of people who are not caught and there are tons of people who police officers give a break to 
or they don't charge an extra additional offense that they could have charged as like a roadside discretion thing. There's millions and millions and millions of unclaimed dollars plus the points. Well, driver point premium, driver, driver risk premium. Point premium yeah. Driver risk premium. This guy driving a Range Rover license plate PP129F at the 1900 block of West Broadway at 150 today, just there on his cell phone. Sorry if you're a listener. I suppose. Or a client. I suppose. I don't know. <laughs> the, uh, I don't know him as a client. Anyway, I was, uh, I was disappointed to, uh, to see that this is something I'm seeing so often now. So maybe this money will deter some people. You know, our... Uh, well, it's probably not going to be given to the Vancouver Police Department. Don't, but don't worry, they're hiring 100 more officers. So That's true. But you know, like the, the police officer who issued more cell phone tickets than anybody, and he would take the photograph, <laughs> Fred has been moved out of cell phone ticket enforcement and is now CSI Fred, apparently. So CSI that could Fred. be the reason that we I'd have seen. That. Yeah, I'd watch it too. I mean, especially if it was Fred because he's, you know, entertaining okay. good guy. He's also a very diligent police officer, and if you got a cell phone ticket from him, chances are he has a photograph of you with the cell phone in your hand. Yes, and a lovely, like, panicked look on your face, usually. <laughs> yeah. um, I have seen many of them, and I love them all. Um, but let's talk a little bit about asset forfeiture, because that's another interesting angle of this that is a big revenue generator. We well, saw this in the Well, and it's really US. like, that seems so ethically against the Dave Eby that oh, people yeah. he understood against, him to be. Railed against civil forfeiture when he was the ED of the BC Civil Liberties Association, for example. Indeed. But civil forfeiture... It is effectively, for those who don't know, a process whereby the police can say, we're pretty sure that you have this cool stuff because of criminal activity. And so we're going to take it. And then we're going to file an application in court. And a judge is going to determine whether or not you have this stuff lawfully. But you've got to prove. Onus is on you yeah. to prove that you've got it. And you've got to pay for the whole, your whole, whole defense process. and yes. the process. And if you, you don't succeed, you have to pay for costs. Court costs, yes. So very interesting system, very you oppressive. Never, you never imagined you'd have to have those records for that thing that you've got. You never bothered to keep them because why would you? Why are you saying that specifically looking at me like I'm the worst person for keeping my financial records straight? These are in shoeboxes. <laughs> we have them all. Like shoeboxes, plastic we're bags. We're always <laughs> able to find them. It's just that it takes tons and tons of hours, hours. of labor. Yeah, I know. It's tax time. Um, but but the problem with this this system is it is used disproportionately to harass people of color who have nice things. Yeah, that might be an issue. You see a white guy in a Ferrari? Are you going to draw the same conclusions as a police officer with your institutionalized biases as if you see a South Asian guy in a Ferrari? Uh, chances are the South Asian guy in a Ferrari's family owns some food processing business that they've owned for a hundred years and they've succeeded together and done very well and... Sometimes the child has got two MBAs and a Harvard Law degree. Sure. 
But that's not what the police come to the conclusion. The police go, oh, South Asian male, nice car, gang activity. Oh, maybe. I mean, <laughs> I suppose that is one line of thinking, but it doesn't, uh, I mean, I guess my concern is. People uh, running cash businesses? There's not many of those anymore since the pandemic. Mm. I just don't like the, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, I told you this and I've mentioned it before. I was in traffic court once and I overheard police officer talking on his phone that they took somebody's car and he said, yeah, I don't have any evidence. I just want a civil forfeiture it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I just, I, we, we just want to take the car. And he was a, like a drug officer. They had nothing. He just happened to be in traffic court for something else. I overheard this on over the phone. This is never what he would say if he's ever forced to go to court when it's a trial. Um, and I've seen lots of police officers manufacture evidence in cases. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, you know, police officers are not above dishonesty. I, you know, most of them are lovely and doing their best at their job. But, you know, even some of the loveliest officers I've well, caught in in lies. The the and cases. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So this is always my concern with it. I don't like the the reversing the presumption by seizing something that somebody's got. Investigate them and do it right. Well, it's also a lot of guilt by association. A number of cases that I've dealt with historically with civil forfeiture applications when I used to do them were cases where people had a bunch of prime hits, meaning records where their name came up on prime where they were associated to people who were known to be involved in drug dealing or known to be involved in gangs. And because they were there with those people, they were sort of tarred with the same brush. And then the police would take their car and say, well, your friends are, are known drug dealers, so you must also be a drug dealer. And like, maybe, maybe some people who are friends with drug dealers are drug dealers, and maybe some people who are friends with drug dealers are drug users, and maybe some people who are friends with drug dealers just knew them because they grew up together. Well, that's true. I mean, I've had clients who, who uh, were drug dealers and had friends who were not involved in it at all, mm -hmm. and the friends got in trouble. And I had clients who were friends of people from high school, and they remained friends despite the fact that they had very divergent lives after that. And they were scrutinized by the police just by virtue of the fact that they had been seen with that person. The guy goes on to become a dentist, but his friend, still from grade three, is maybe involved with something else. Yep. So then what happens is the police seize their assets, their, you know, Honda Civic, or their perfectly normal, respectable, you know, vehicles or belongings. And Nissan then they Al say... Nissan Altima? This is actually... Yes. Nissan Altima, very common in these types of cases. Um, and then... The director of civil forfeiture says, well, you know what? Your Nissan Altima is worth $7,000. So why don't we give you $2,000 and you walk away from it? Yeah, that's less likely these days. These days they just want to push it right to the limit and they don't want to negotiate and they don't want to explain anything to you. Um, but yes, that's one of the ways that they make money. And it's it's like printing cash. Well, it's been criticized. It's all over North America now. It's been widely criticized um, for abuses. Uh, I've seen abuses from it. It's something that bothers me. There are probably many cases that you would look at objectively and not in our role and say, you know what, I'm happy that that person was uh, dispossessed of that thing, but I'm not a big fan of dispossession. So you go back to Europe in the Middle Ages, and one of the things that would happen to people 
rather than, you know, sentencing provisions for what they were. Uh, but uh, in the after the Peasants' War in Germany, um, people who were on the side of the peasants, many of them were dispossessed. They lost all their possessions and they weren't allowed to have regained possessions. So they basically were forced into poverty. And to me, this is just sort of a... Um, a rubber stamp by the court, some sort of legitimization of the same practice of dispossession, which was considered unfair at the time, um, I guess, and uh, ultimately the practice discontinued. Uh, but um, it, to me, it's just basically a new version of dispossession. Yes. So be interesting to see how this plays out. But the thing people shouldn't be saying is where's the money coming from because they're going to make it back. Ten times over. Now, on a lighter note, Paul. Do we have a lighter note? Do you need a hug? Um, I get a lot of hugs, actually. My kids hug me a lot. I don't really need a hug. But there's circumstances and times I do. Okay. Well, it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, cross-examination the pinpoint method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. Who I guess needed a hug. Well, he had he got in some trouble first, and so you could understand that. Yes, so this was a... Uh... 23-year-old man in uh, Langford who was pulled over by the police um, after he apparently drove over a grass median. They conducted an investigation. He exhibited some signs that maybe he had had a little bit too much to drink, so they asked him to blow into a roadside breathalyzer, and lo and behold, he failed. Uh, ultimately, he was issued a 90-day immediate roadside prohibition, and his car was impounded for 30 days. And the police, after they take your car and they take your license, they got to get you home. Often they'll call a taxi or people call friends or family members to pick them up. But the police officer was kind enough in this case to give this man a ride home. And when they got home, uh, the driver turned and thanked the officer for keeping the streets safe and asked the officer for a hug. Well, isn't that nice? Now, most, <laughs> you know, if you, if I get a Google alerts for various different things with respect to drinking and driving, and I can tell you most of the stories are sad, um, people being killed, that's why it's newsworthy, or somebody being pulled over and they've got their kids in the car, that's unfortunately always newsworthy. But this was newsworthy for the hug. Um, so uh, a, a nicer story in the uh, drinking, driving world, I guess. Yes. And what I found most amusing about this was like the release, the news story that the RCMP put out was like, we don't often get thanked by people, especially people on the opposite side of what we're doing. But you know, you know, in your heart of hearts, Paul, that in the police report that was played off like he was so intoxicated. He didn't behave appropriately. When I got home, he tried to hug me. Well, the other thing that kind of surprised me about it was that it came out. Right. Yeah. So the officer must have told other officers and they must have decided, wow, this is something that's worth, you know, re re repeating and to the to the benefit of the police. Right. Making the police look uh, look good. 
Um, the uh, so there was a decision made uh, for propaganda purposes to release this information, and it must have gone around the detachment. So it must have been you know so and so talking to so and so after the fact, saying, "Wow, oh, that guy, that guy did not ask me to give him a hug after it was all done," and then it uh, and then it became a news story. So the driver is ridiculous, but uh, how these things play out. Even more ridiculous. Maybe. Now, I want to cut our ridiculous driver of the week short because there's also something else ridiculous that people need to check out. It's true. So today is Friday, the 25th of November. We record this on the uh, 24th, which I, I've been referring to as Christmas on the Moon Eve because tomorrow, Friday, the day this podcast comes out, is the day that I release my next song, my first ever Christmas song, Christmas on the Moon. So we will uh, have a link to it on the Driving Law Pod uh, Twitter account. And on my Twitter account, you can also find my YouTube page, Prairie Paul. You can see the video for Christmas on the Moon. I'm singing it, but there are other co-stars and guest appearances in the video. And it is pretty silly. All right. Well, that's our podcast. Thanks for tuning in. And if you need to reach us about a driving law related issue, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law, but not before you give this a listen first.